Hello everyone, I'm Neil Murphy and welcome to If Glasgow Swords Could Talk, a podcast by Glasgow City Heritage Trust about the stories and relationships between historic buildings and people in Glasgow. Today, we're getting ready for a walk in the park, but as always in this series, we'll be travelling through time as well as space and in excellent company. It could be a long walk. Glasgow has a wealth of great public parks and gardens. They are much-loved spaces that have gained special significance, especially during the last few years with lockdown and the pandemic. Many of us have found a welcome escape from that in Glasgow's dear green places. We can be grateful to the visions of the Victorians who invested in landscapes laid out and planted for citizens to enjoy more than 150 years ago. It was a generous gift, but it made a lot of practical sense. By the 1880s, Glasgow was one of the fastest growing cities in the world with a rapidly growing population crammed into tenements and factories. And people needed work and housing, but as the city leaders saw, they also needed space to enjoy life and room to breathe. So the public parks were designed to be the lungs of Glasgow. But with the Victorian belief in self-improvement, they were also filled with opportunities for entertainment and education, learning while having fun. And creative industries rose to the challenge. At the turn of the 20th century, you wouldn't walk far without hearing music or shows from a Saracen Foundry bandstand. You might pause for a drink from one of their equally beautiful water fountains. And if, by chance, it started to rain, you could take shelter in the wonderful world of glass houses more often than not provided by the enterprising horticultural builders Simpson and Farmer of Partick Bridge. Magnificent glass houses are a symbol of that optimistic era. Domes of carved glass in wrought iron frames, greenhouses filled with exotic plants. They were the product of new cutting edge technology at a time of dynamic change. We see them now in different states of survival on our walks in the parks. In another era of rapid change, how do we manage this formidable legacy? The designers, engineers, architects and builders of the Victorian and Edwardian eras could count on low-cost labour energy materials. That's not the way things are in the 2020s. So how can we protect and restore our historic buildings? Do we have the skills, time, materials and money to do them justice? These are daunting questions for conservationists, not least Glasgow City Heritage Trust. And I can't think of anyone better to discuss them with than today's guest, conservation architect Fiona Sinclair, who is passionate about the care and repair of historic buildings. Fiona takes particular interest in traditional building materials and the craft required to work with them. She is quite often to be found up scaffolding, investigating structures at close quarters. Lately, she's been flying drones over Queen's Park Glasshouse as she prepares a report on this unique building. So, a very well welcome to the podcast for you, Fiona, and we are really looking forward to this conversation. Okay, let's begin with the parks. So, Glasgow's glasshouses are a remarkable story, but they need space so they could be built. So, Glasgow has a wealth of public parks which provided the space, scope and inspiration for hothouses, greenhouses and palm houses and the winter gardens of the city. So can we start looking at the city's great spread of parks and gardens and how did that come about? Well, you, you more or less um, mentioned in your introduction the, the reasoning behind the creation of so many public parks across the city. And it was this um, sense on the part of the city fathers that so much of Glasgow in the mid-19th century was being built over 
very, very rapidly. For housing, you mentioned tenements, of course, uh, that wonderful building type that accommodates people from all walks of life. Um, industry, anything related to shipbuilding or engineering. Mm -hmm. um, and what that effectively meant was that very few parts of the city um, were not either covered with buildings or, or hard surfaces. And there was a um, medical officer for health called William Gardner, who on his retirement in 1900, in his yes. retirement speech, uh -huh. used this expression, uh, the lungs of the city. And right. he had been long concerned with the state of the lungs of the yes. city. Yes. Now, he might not have been the first person who coined that phrase, but he certainly uh, you know, made his point to mm -hmm. those who were assembled to hear his retirement. And he actually said that in his early years as a medical officer, he'd been able to walk for maybe four or five miles across the city mm -hmm. and not see a blade of grass or a so or, or any greenery right. at John, all. John Carrick talks about that too. It's in John Carrick's obituary, which is by William Gardner. Right, yes. yes. So it's um it was something that the it's interesting because the city was very good at promoting its achievements in respect of the provision of municipal housing, mm -hmm. uh, the provision of, say, the production of gas, the production of electricity, transport. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we, we had uh, a wonderful tram system. There were three tunnels below mm -hmm. the river, which they seemed to deliver almost effortlessly, but they didn't promote the kind of public parks mm -hmm. to the same extent. Yeah. Um, so I think the city did itself a little bit of a disservice um, by not promoting them, but run about the uh, beginning of the 20th century, they began to realise that actually they had an asset in, in the green space that had been created. And they did begin to report, they did mm -hmm. begin to uh, promote how important the parks were right. and the, the, the amount of work that had gone into purchasing the land. Because yes. this wasn't yes. land that, that, that came at no cost. Yeah. They had to physically buy land. Yes. So they bought Glasgow Green, which is yes. the oldest of uh, the city's parks, once they drained it and formalised it. Yes. And then, yeah. of course, they spent a vast amount of money buying Kelvin Grove Park, mm -hmm. which, of course, as we you know... various estates pieced together. There. And, they, and yeah. they had to attempt to recoup quite a bit of that outlay by reserving the crest of Woodlands Hill mm -hmm. for that fantastic housing by the great Charles Wilson. Yes. And, yeah. of course, there was, there was an outcry when the first master plan which Wilson worked on with Sir Joseph Paxson was a massive outcry when this was this was published because too much of the park, too much of the land was being set aside for housing. Right. So the, the, you know, the public were essentially, right. I thought that's, we were getting a park out of uh -huh. this. Uh -huh. All we're getting is housing. None of us will be yes. able to afford. Yeah. So the um, the housing was it, it was confined to the area we now see, and it mm. was effectively completed, albeit Park Modern, of course, wasn't. But um, on the back of the success of Kelvin Grove Park, the city then began to look further south mm -hmm. um, and they then uh, felt that perhaps there ought to be a park somewhere in the area where Queen's Park now exists. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, that, that met with more opposition, largely, I think, because the, the city fathers, they, were, they remained unconvinced that people would want to walk through the industry and the deprivation of Govan Hill, Gorbals mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Govan Hill, to get to a public park. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was more of an uphill struggle for the, uh, the Parks Committee to persuade the city that an investment needed to be made on the south side. Sure. Then it came in the form of, of uh, Neil Thompson of yes. the Cross yeah, the Loop yeah, Bakery, exactly. yes. who offered the land of Pathhead yeah. Farm to the yes. city. Yeah, all that really fascinates me because when you see how the, the, the city gradually marches up to the park and the fact that they had the foresight to build the park first and then set out this master plan for the kind of the edges of the park so and how it's all carefully framed with the two churches at either end which bring the views 
and then you've got this great avenue all the way down. Well, it's not an avenue, but it could be an avenue. Uh, Victoria Road into Eglinton Road and straight into the heart of the city. And it's all so carefully thought about. And yet the city wasn't there yet. And it was, it was actually in um, separate boroughs because you've got um, the borough of Cross Hill, which is springing up right next to it as well. So it's, the city is buying land that's beyond its boundary. Which yes, is really it's effectively providing a public park for Port Shaw's Langside, yeah. all of these small estates that were owned by um, visionaries, yes. I suppose, and yes. uh, which very, very gradually were absorbed into the city. Um, and of course, when um, Port Shaw's became part of the city, um, mm-hmm. that, that, that kind of like brought more land in. But probably most importantly, in 1912, when the boroughs of Government Party were annexed to the city, that effectively brought Victoria Park into the city and Elder Park uh, mm-hmm. in Govan. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a tremendous uh, map, I think it's Bartholomew, uh, which was uh, published to, to really emphasise how much green space the, the, the city fathers had provided. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's signed off by uh, A.B. MacDonald, Alexander right. B. MacDonald, Carrick's yes. successor. Yes. Um, and it's reprinted in that fantastic book, Glasgow, Mapping the City, mm-hmm. by, by John Moore, I think yes, it is. Um, and it just shows <clears throat> the city in 1900 with these, these pockets of, of greenery encircling mm-hmm. the city centre. But then, of course, what the city also did, um, on top of the production of large public parks, was they, they created squares and playgrounds. Mm-hmm. And there are some fabulous little playgrounds. They can't really be called parks. Homely Park mm-hmm. near Cascart is yes, one. Yeah, it's, it's got some of its original playgrounds. It does, it does. I would love to see them saved, actually, because the, yeah. the swings there are particularly it's beautiful, fantastic. but they're, in, they're quite vulnerable. At the yes, moment. and I mean, these, these are, these are catalogue items that were commonplace, um, and we see very, very yeah. few of them retained. Yes. Yeah, um, and then yeah. you've got a very, very small Govan Hill recreation ground right at the heart of Govan Hill. It's mm-hmm. small, but it's really important. I really like that one. It's better than, this is sacrilege coming from you, of course, um, but uh, Maxwell Square. Yes. Yeah, 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 yes so it's yeah. just too small. Yeah. So I much prefer the Govan yes. one. I think that's, it's, it's, that's a really and it's, nice it's, it's a kind of, it's a gap which wasn't built over with tenements, which yes. is really, really important. And of course, there are some tremendous examples nowadays less so then, but nowadays, of backcourt areas that mm-hmm. have been developed as, as kind of pocket parks almost. Yes. And, and you're right, they came into their own during uh, 2020, yeah, very, during very lockdown. Much, yeah. I, very I'm, much. I'm lucky enough to live on one. So um, where, where we are uh, on the south side, that bl- the block that I live in was allegedly taken over as officers' housing in the Second World War. And so they removed all of the, 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 the you know, the walls dividing yeah. the tenement gardens. So it's one huge space, which was allegedly a parade ground. I believe that when I see it. Um, but it makes complete sense because when you look at how, how those boundaries worked, it must have been impossible to manage yeah. these tiny little gardens that don't align with, uh, with yeah. the tenements. I, I mean, so, it, but it's, it's a fantastic space now because everyone just uses it for barbecues and playing games. Yeah. And it's I mean, pretty... communal backcourts are fascinating. Yeah. I mean, they used to be... Well, they, they, they provided uh, a bin storage, quite often the wash houses uh, mm-hmm. were in the back. Of course, ash pits, of yes. course, 
um, and drying greens. They weren't really intended for people to sit out in. No, were very no, workmanlike. no, but we can work but them now. But now, as part of the kind of green lug of the city, yeah, so at least exactly. that's something we could do now yes. if we're enlightened about it. Yeah. Um, okay, so well, let's move on to kind of you know the, the, the glass houses and the wind gardens themselves. When is it they start to appear? And there's also interesting stories behind some of these as well. Um, some of them having been built in Glasgow, but others transported to the city from elsewhere. So, you know, which came first and um, how many can we still see around the city? Well, very, very famously, the first to appear was John Kibble's palace that uh, we see in Botanic Gardens at the, uh, the junction of Barge Road and Great Western Road, of course. And John Kibble was a, he was a photographer. Apparently, he owned the largest camera ever made. It had <laughs> such a massive lens, it had to be towed by a horse on a cart. Um, on which Kibble um, allegedly, you know, developed developed the photographs as they were as they were kind of like travelling uh, along. Um, he was an astronomer. He was an engineer, mm-hmm. um, a fascinating character, and he had um, built a house for himself on the shores of Loch Long mm-hmm. in Coolport. Mm-hmm. And behind that house, he began to build um, a glass house, a hot house. Uh, using the architects Boucher and Cowsland yes, and uh, who, who James, a, James they Boucher. Had a, they had a villa next door. They did. Yes. James Boucher built a family villa next door and I believe it still exists. I right. believe it is used as a storage depot by the military establishment. Really? It's such Coupon. a shame that it's all kind of be taken over by the military along there. And of course, Coolport House has long since been demolished. Yes. So in any event, um, for whatever reason, Kibble offered the glass house to the city. Mm-hmm. He either decided it, there was too much in the way of maintenance or he didn't have time Very to actually properly use it. He'd collected statuary as well. Really? So he right, offered okay. the glass house and the statuary right. to the city. Right. And he offered it in the first instance to Queen's Park. Mm-hmm. And he got a bit fed up with them prevaricating. And apparently it was because he had initially offered it um, as, a, as a lease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he imposed the condition that he wanted to be able to hold performances in it and charge right. um, and to sell refreshments. Okay. And there was this notion that, that those refreshments would okay. be alcohol, yeah. uh, which, which didn't which go down didn't, at all didn't well. Fit with the corporation's kind of philosophy at yes. all. And apparently, so. <laughs> um, I, just, I read last night, it's a very wonderful book about the Kibble Palace by Eric Curtis, yes. which is a fabulous little book. Yes. Uh, very, and Eric, of course, was based at Botanic Gardens for many years. And I read just last night that that year that Kibble offered it, the city was really short of money and the Lord Provost had had to uh, resign because his own company had gone bankrupt or something of that order. So there really was no money. So so Kibble eventually offered it to the Botanic Gardens, which at the time wasn't owned by the city, or at least right. I don't think it was. It was owned by the Royal Botanic Institution yeah, of Glasgow. Right. Yes. And we'd moved there from Sandyford. Yes. Um, and I think they'd moved to Sandyford from High Street, from Glasgow University. Right, okay. I think and they'd moved across the, the city, yes. Right, okay. Um, so he offered it to them. Um, it was dismantled, it was loaded onto a steamer at the pier in Coolport, and then mm-hmm. it was taken to Port Dundas in a storm, apparently. And Kibble wrote <laughs> about how his statue of Apollo arrived looking like a proper ruffian. <laughs> it was very badly, very badly done as part of the, uh, this journey. And then Kibble paid to have the dome enlarged. 
So right. what we see today is not the original, no, it's no. much, much larger. Yes, yeah. No, I've seen photographs. Um, and that, of course, and became the first, uh, the, the, the first of Glasgow's glass houses, great mm-hmm. glass houses. And it remains the best. Yes. And of course, it's yeah, in the easily. best condition because there was huge investment in yes. it. And it was effectively dismantled. I believe it developed a bit of a twist. Yes, it developed, developed a twist. A twist. Yeah. Um, so it was used for performances, and I think Disraeli and Gladstone both spoke there, both That's, gave speeches yes, there. Absolutely. Um, so it yes. was used for you know all manner of entertainment, less so for the propagation of plants. And that's why Botanic Gardens has got what they call the main range, which is a mm-hmm. much, much bigger and more utilitarian looking glass house alongside. Right. Okay. That's where they actually grew the big palm trees, right. the bigger because, plants. Because the kibble was yes. more for display and performance. Um, okay. So that, that and uh, Toll Cross, uh, the Toll Cross glass houses uh, were donated by a councillor on his mm-hmm. retirement and they came from Ardrossan. Right. He had built them for his own use in Ardrossan. He donated them to the city and they were re-erected in Toll Cross Park. And then probably the one that people know best uh, is the Winter Gardens behind the People's Palace. Mm-hmm. And they were designed by the Office of Public Works by A.B. MacDonald, as mm-hmm. Chapa mentioned. And I think they were opened about something like 1898. And by yes. 1900, people were raving about what a great asset for the city it was. And the interesting thing is, they do kind of look as if where the Winter Gardens added after the People's Palace were built, but mm-hmm. no, it was all, you know, it's it a single holistic design. Yeah, um, it's interesting because obviously that is the East End equivalent of the Kelvin Grove, and yet the Kelvin Grove didn't end up with a glass house. Well, interestingly, Kelvin Grove should have had a glass house because when Charles Wilson and Joseph Paxton worked on the master plan, Paxton had proposed a Winter Gardens for the banks of the Kelvin, and it right. was never built. Right. And there are illustrations of what it would have looked like. Oh, it had a great dome, of course. Right. There's a lovely watercolour mm-hmm. um, of what it would have looked like. So there was supposed to be a Winter Garden in Kelvin Grove Park, but that wasn't delivered. Right. Um, and then, of course, probably the one that came closest to uh, the, the, the city referred, uh, the city fathers referred often to um, what was called the Great Stove or the Great Conservatory, which was built at Chatsworth by mm-hmm. Joseph Paxton mm-hmm. for the Duke of Devonshire. Um, and certainly on record, um, the, either the Lord Provost or the Superintendent of the Parks Committee referred to it as the gorgeous conservatory at Chatsworth. And that was an ambition. They would have something similar. Of course, they're never going to get anything half as big as that because you could drive a carriage from one end to the other at, at Chatsworth. But the Springburn <laughs> Winter Garden is probably the closest they came it's, to that. It's enormous. Um, it's huge. Really, really impressive piece of structure. Yeah, um, quite, quite and, something. and has a mezzanine, which none of the others yes, have, absolutely. of course. Yes. Yeah, Two-story. Yeah, yeah, that gives concrete yeah. medicine that wraps around it. Yeah. yeah. But there were little glass houses in places like Elder Park. Mm-hmm. Um, there, were, there were probably a whole series of smaller glass houses which have gone. Mm. So we're left really with um, the Queen's Park glass houses, Botanic Gardens and all its range of wonderful glass houses. And in mm. Botanic Gardens, interestingly, behind the main range, it's a whole series of really interesting miniature greenhouses mm. where mm. they do lots of very interesting propagation. Yes. There's a lot of very, very interesting kind of educational activities take place there. Um, you've got Toll Cross, um, the Winter Gardens, behind the Yeah, the Winter Gardens, which were um, in the papers just yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we raise enough money to properly restore Absolutely. the Winter Gardens? Yeah, which would be good to yeah. see. And then Springburn, which is borderline ruinous. Yes. 
Um, no, I mean, the first proposal is always with Springburn to get yeah. it back into some form of kind of enclosed space, but it's how you go about doing that. So I think collective architects will look yes. at the yes. panels yeah. mm-hmm. for it instead, which would obviously give it a very different yeah. appearance. But, but it is kind of the ritual, like, so it's kind of... It's very <laughs> difficult, works, it really is. And yeah, I mean, sort of you mentioned in your introduction, you know, how do you look after something like that? How do yeah. you restore something like that? I think I... I think I read somewhere that over seven million was spent restoring Kibble Palace. Yeah, correct. That was. And you know, where do you find that kind of money in Absolutely. this day and age? It's a, it's How can you justify ask. it? It is a big ask. You can only really justify it on the basis of something as utterly unique, which yeah. of course the Kibble Palace is. And that's yes. a bit of a harder sell for some of the other glass houses across mm-hmm. the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but the People's Palace, I think you could make an argument that that is a huge asset built for the city. Mm-hmm. Built, built for you know the, the people of the city and that really you know it's Glasgow's story that yes. building yeah very much um, and that that's that's one that really does need and um, in our oldest part yes, yes quite. exactly yes indeed it is, it is a bit of a worry what's happening with it um, so okay mo- moving on to the present then Queen's Park Glass has closed due to safety concerns in 2020 um, particularly with the dismantling of the dome over the centre of it so, um, you know, can you can you tell us a bit about its history and what happened to that? Because that wasn't the original intended location for the glass house. Well, in Queen's Park uh, Glass House, it, it began life as propagating sheds. Right. Uh, no, no more, no fancier than that. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, by that by that point, the the city had a requirement for so many bulbs, flowers plants mm. to to actually introduce colour into the parks, which is a very, very important part of them, that they needed somewhere to actually um, to grow these. Now, there wasn't, they didn't own, or they might have owned botanic gardens at, by then, but there wasn't sufficient room for them to use any of the sheds there for, for just bringing on bedding plants and mm-hmm. the like. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of thing we see in hanging baskets and the, the kind of movable um, kind of planters that suddenly yes. appear in George Square <laughs> whenever the Commonwealth Games <laughs> come to the city. Um, so the Queen's Park glass houses were simple propagating sheds um, and there was no expectation the public would have access. So they were designed by the Office of Public Works in 1895. It went out to tender Simpson and Farmer, who mm-hmm. were horticultural builders. Mm-hmm. They won the tender. Uh, they were built for £3,000. It cost £3,000 to build the Queen's Park glass house. And what could you get now? A couple of bricks. I know, I know. <laughs> a couple of bricks and a pane of glass. Um, but interestingly, within uh, a few years, it became apparent that members of the public had an expectation of entry. Um, because, of course, a number of them would have been aware that Sir Joseph Paxton had been consulted on Queen's Park, the layout mm-hmm. of Queen's Park as well, and mm-hmm. he had proposed this huge winter garden, which John Carrick, uh, mm-hmm. as city architect, had thrown out as <laughs> being far, <laughs> far too yes, expensive. Mr. Rational and Pragmatic. <laughs> exactly. You're not having that. <laughs> You're not having that music hall with promenades and a lot of glass. And Paxton believed passionately, of course, that people really needed to remain dry and warm. He, mm. he interestingly, uh, you know, also saw the benefit of glass houses from a health point of view. Mm. You can't, if you're walking around a park and you're cold and there's nowhere to shelter, then you're going to become ill. So mm. that was how he promoted um, glass houses as uh, really as shelters. But within a couple of years of the Queen's Park propagating sheds being opened, members of the public were clearly turning up and, and they wanted to see what was inside. So they were extended. 
um, and the entrance was uh, redesigned so that members of the public could. And then, of course, plants and public cohabitated very successfully until its closure in, in 2020. And, mm -hmm. and, and that was, well, it was two part, of course. It was closed during lockdown, but um, the dome had, I think, developed, um, again, a tiny bit of a twist. Right. So it was dismantled, but it's in storage. Right, okay, it's so it can be re-erected. Yeah, the, the curved glass is in right. storage, albeit it's outside last right, time. Okay. The weather vane's in storage and the framework. Sure. So yeah, I'm hopeful. Um, I don't know whether you've seen them yet, but there've been recently announced plans um, by um, livable neighbourhoods for dealing with um, the, the the junction at the monument ah, um, that's just in front I of it. I haven't seen that. So yes. um, it's all about kind of rationalising the street layout there, and there's a suggestion of doing mm -hmm. something with the slope that would take you yes, up to the, yes. the area in front of the glass houses. Uh, that would be good. So, yeah. you know, transforming that and getting mm -hmm. a glass houses fixed yes. would actually be, you know, I think that would be an extremely popular would, move and yes, allow much yes. more access to it. Oh, I mean, it's funny, I, I lived, you know, next door to Greens Park for quite a long time. I didn't, didn't it took me two years to discover that the glass houses. They're hidden. They really are. Really they're hidden. Yeah. And I think it's the way in which Queen's Park was laid out because it was, it was purchased in, in two parts, of course. Um, Neil Thompson sold off Pathhead Farm, uh, Carrick laid it out. The principal entrance, as you mentioned, was at the top of Victoria Road, that tremendous kind of vista. And, and I mean, it really is a vista. Um, but then when Neil Thompson died, um, the trustees of the other half of the park, where Camphill Mansion sits, Camphill House, they eventually were persuaded to sell that to the city. Right. But of course, I, that happened about the same time, I think, as the propagating sheds were built. So I think that had they owned the whole park, they might have been in a more prominent position. Right. And there might have been a notion they could be uh -huh. used for members of the public <coughs> as well as plants. And of course, the, the, um, the purpose of the dome, I guess, was twofold. One, although these were very utilitarian um, propagating sheds, the intention was that they, they looked attractive, of course. Mm. Um, so the dome would have given them a bit of, bit of a presence, a bit yeah, of grandeur. Bit, bit more of a but also it allowed them to grow bigger, taller plants below yes. the dome because there's huge passion for growing palm trees mm -hmm. and bananas and mm -hmm. pineapples. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is what drove the glasshouse craze yes. amongst the landed gentry. Yes. This we were talking earlier about the, the chimney, yes. which is also a really wonderful feature and also yeah. appears in Springbone as well. Yes, yeah. So can you talk about that as well? Because yeah, well, that, to me is totally, because it's really well, exotic. The old, the old, the inter well, obviously, um, if you're going to grow plants undercover in Glasgow, uh, you need heat mm -hmm. and ventilation. So the design of Queen's Park Glasshouse is very, very simple. Um, there is a huge boiler system which required a boiler chimney. Mm -hmm. um, there was a little kind of office block built out of lovely red engineering brick and just a massive network of heating pipes that ran either underground uh, in trenches or above ground below little kind of, you know, propagating kind of planters in all of these little sheds. So with such a large coal-fired uh, boiler at the mm -hmm. time, there was the need for a chimney and there was also a need to feed the boiler water. Right. So this beautiful red brick chimney was designed, which has got a header tank wrapped around it, kind of about two thirds of the way up. Mm -hmm. And that, that, was, that was where rainwater was collected as well. It was topped right. up. Um, and it is a very, very fine feature. And yes, it's repeated at Springburn Park because, of course, they were, they were both designed by 
the Office of Public Works. Yes, so yeah, why, why waste why waste a good detail? Yes, a really talent, talented team of, <laughs> Very talented of, of, team. of architects yes. and designers. There. Yeah, and of course there's a tradition. You know, we've still got city architects department. You know, yes. So this is a sort of tradition that's been passed down. Okay. Um, turning to who pays for all of this, and how do we go about conserving and restoring our um, you know historic glass houses? These are kind of big questions. I'm acutely conscious of this, having been involved in Govan Hill Baths, which is mm. by the same yes, office. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, it's one of these kind of great legacy artifacts. So, you know, how do our kind of communities in Glasgow and charities and the local authority, how do we go about paying for this kind of great Victorian legacy, um, which comes with all these responsibilities and obviously significant bills to match? Yes. So what are we to do about that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I don't really have the answer for that. I think that when you have a, a very unique building such as Kibble Palace, a very strong case can be made that, mm. um, you know, the, the, the city, the building owner ought not to have to bear those costs because you've got something that's nationally, maybe even internationally significant. Yes. It's a much, much harder argument to make in, for instance, the case of Toll Cross, where mm. I think there was a very pragmatic approach taken to the restoration. It wasn't a full restoration. Right. I think that it's much more difficult to make that case at Queen's Park. So the, the, the kind of use of the building, um, mm. supported by a you know, kind of community support and a good, robust business plan, that's what typically is needed now mm. to, to deliver the, the repairs. But first and foremost, if something's properly maintained from the outset, and that requires, in the case of glass houses, you know, sort of frequent redecoration, mm. um, because such a lot of it is 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 made of wood that, that needs frequent redecoration. If you can properly look after something from the outset, then your restoration bills or your conservation bills at the end of the day are going to be less. Yes. But in the case of yeah, I mean, in the case of Queen's Park glass houses, it's about bringing back. Um, well, it's about sort of bringing it back into the public eye. Now, it's not that it's vanished from the public eye, but for instance, there used to be a kitchen, mm-hmm. there used to be a cafe, right? And and now, of course, that that cafe would be in competition with so many other cafes around mm-hmm. Queens Park, mm-hmm. and it's about delivering something. And and ultimately, what happens is you have to actually ask the public what they think it could deliver in the first instance, mm-hmm. and and what they would bring to it. Um, and it's it's a kind of odd one. I was I was I was thinking that looking after public parks, you could do that very very um, effectively using volunteers because people you know could be very very easily trained to look after soft landscaping and yes. to actually work in a park. You know, even doing something as simple as raking gravel or yeah. you know weeding. But looking after a building like a glass house, it's which complex. is quite specialist, yes. Yes. and there are not many companies out there like Simpson and Farmer, they, mm. who did nothing but build hot houses, mm-hmm. um, and who did it very, very effectively. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 demonstrating a need, mm-hmm. um, and demonstrating um, a, you know a need that's compatible. It's still used for right. for propagation. Right. It's got little reptile house as well. Right. Um, but the, but the, the, the cafe, I think, had been closed long before the, um, but before the pandemic. Right. Okay. Um, so it's, it's just actually, you know, it's this whole story. They've, they've, they've got it at Pollock Park, for instance, with the borough being reopened and providing, you know, great lunches and fantastic coffee in a lovely setting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, you know, Pollock House, which used to provide fantastic lunches in a great setting, is now struggling. Really? Because you, you, they do wonderful scones. They do <laughs> fantastic scones, but they're not as fantastic now. But, you know, there is this whole thing of over-provision. Right. And, and how do you hit something that actually allows you to attract funding from... And, of course, that's the sort of thing, you know, that Glasgow City Heritage Trust have traditionally been able to assist with but, mm-hmm. but you don't have the sort of funds that can tackle not, not you, tackle you know something you, you're kind scale. of you have to part fund something yes. that's supported yeah. by all manner of other funders including the community and there's a very very good example of community interaction and raising of funds not far from the glass house and of course that, that featured in one of your podcasts last year mm-hmm. or the year before and that's Campbell Gate yes. where um, you know Wonderful tenement, and the owners really got together and drove the refurbishment of that building with, mm-hmm. of course, help from Glasgow City Heritage Trust and Glasgow City Council, who both of whom have been fantastic. They've been a great, great help to the owners. But it was driven by the owners. Yes. And yeah. you need and somebody to take kind of, ownership yeah. of an idea yeah. or that, a building. Getting, getting that grassroots and encouraging that. Um, it's difficult to do it's because you hard. need people who are going to actually be the leaders in all of that and have the tenacity to be able to bring it off and deliver it. Like Govan Hill Baths. Yes, absolutely. And, some, and the same yeah. with, with Campbell yes. Gate. And it's sometimes these, these 10 years, exactly. I mean, that's 10 years yes. that, uh, that it took to get Campbell Gate yes. Yes. <laughs> near completion. Very much. Um, and, uh, you know, most most projects of that nature have got a very, very long lead-in time mm-hmm. and it requires people to support it. In, mm-hmm. um, and it requires a lot of voluntary effort. Very much. Okay, kind of shifting away from that, but kind of touching on kind of the urban aspects of this. Um, obviously, the Victorians were really inspired by glass and the size of glass as the technology improved. Um, but particularly in Glasgow, with it being such a rainy city, you know, Glasgow had numerous arcades and shopping centres, mm-hmm. stations with you know enormous glass roofs, and of course, Greek Thompson even had his plan for like, you know, arcaded street so that children could play out, you know, outside without having to worry about the rain. So is there hope for such kind of inspiration now? Ah, no, I'm not sure we're quite as ambitious as the Victorians were. <laughs> I don't think we're, we're um, they were architects, uh, engineers, and I guess you could call them funders, mm-hmm. the city. So much more, uh, mm-hmm. so much more bold. Yes. Um, during during the, the period when we saw the great glazed train sheds and all of these fantastic shopping passages, mm-hmm. um, covered in glass, I think we are probably less. We're we're well. In fairness, we we are we are required to comply with much much more in the way of legislation. Yes. And of course with glass comes energy laws mm-hmm. and you get this this very complex kind of task that has to be kind of tackled. Um because of course as as you say the city recognized the benefits of of glazing um shelter and natural light mm-hmm. and made wonderful use of it. Mm-hmm. And really 
become interesting. I think we came close with Princes Square, which yes. was a very bold intervention for its time. Yeah, very, very much. Very successful. Whatever you think about mm-hmm. the size of the of the structural members, mm-hmm. which are much bigger than the they Victorians, much, of course, would have used. Yes. Whatever you think about <laughs> that, I mean that that, that was inspired. Yeah, it's absolutely. very very successful. Much more successful than save uh, um, Saint Enos Centre. Um, which is, is, is an ambitious piece of engineering, but it's how it fits into its surroundings, and particularly that kind of south flank to it, where it's just you know, blank yes. facade, yeah. blank facade, which is such a shame. It is. And, and it is kind of, in some ways, it is a shame that it's going to be, if the scene in the centre is to be completely rethought, yes. and that turned into a much more urban I think the original area. design for the Enoch you know, Centre was far, far better than really, what was actually delivered. Seen, seen yeah, the there were some the very, very early drawings that suggested that inspiration was being drawn from the old um, engine shed. Right. Um, but yes, and it's it, yeah, the, the glazing didn't really deliver. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, yes, it, it, it's, it's not one that you would cite as being a particularly good example. No. Um, we come back to the bottle. It, of course, is mm-hmm. a wonderful example Very of much. the use of glass. Yes, yeah, it um, does. It works really successfully. And how it integrates with uh, the landscape, and particularly when you come through that whole sequence of kind of rooms and that kind of the, the architectural promenade through the space and to the that back gallery over overlooking the woodland, and there's this kind of connection between yeah. all of these man-made artifacts inside and then nature directly on the other yeah, side. Of the it, glass. Make, it makes really wonderful, beautiful, it beautiful makes moment. Very very wonderful use of of glazing. And so there are there are you know some really very good examples, but of course the you know the bottle itself required fairly sort of yeah, major exactly. works mm-hmm. to yeah, significant. Um, I mean, that's yeah. some like seventy million. Yes. To, to so, the cost for refurbishing that. Ten, so it's ten much times and, the Kibble Palace. Part part of that was how do you handle the energy issues of, yes. of glass and yeah. make that more efficient. Mm-hmm. So there was a you know, effectively had to be reskinned. Yes. So you know that's yeah. that's considerable expense. It's, it's interesting. I um I noticed just the other day um a tiny project in which I'm involved where permission was given to double glaze windows in a in a Georgian townhouse. Mm-hmm. But the windows, because they require to be energy efficient, have got coating on them, and that coating is quite it's quite visible. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a colour to it, yes. um, which yeah, is really, unexpected, really, you really and notice you it. notice it's, it, yeah. you know. And I don't know whether that's just kind of people like us, and we're, yes. we're too picky. And it, and it, it can't, you know, because I was, I was saying to the owner, you'll be able to use this for filming, it's a perfect little Georgian townhouse mm-hmm. now, it's been restored. And, uh, and then I thought, but they're going to have to tone down the colour of the window yes. glass. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned Alexander Greek Thompson. He worked for a period for um, the architect John Baird, and he was mm. he was the very first, in my view, um, to, to to kind of properly use glass in the city. Yes. Because of course he was the architect of their gallery. That, that whole period as well is really fascinating to me. Is that when you look at the the Charles Good insurance maps of the city, yes, which are fascinating. Yes. And you see within them the number of glazed courtyards. Yeah. This is like touching mm-hmm. on Princess Square. The number yeah. of glazed courtyards mm-hmm. which have been lost from the city centre, um, either through demolition yeah. or just obviously it was too much to maintain yeah. them and they've disappeared. And that, you, you realise that once upon a time there must have been, if you could look across the rooftops, yeah. there must have been hundreds of these yeah. Yeah. kind of glazed in arcades yes. that they would need for kind of handling you know, um, fabric or, um, you know, the goods, but do it in the dry space yes. rather than, yep. but still let light yep. into the building somehow. Yes. 
and yet all that's disappeared over it time. Has. Which yes. is a great shame. I mean, there was Royal Arcade had a mm-hmm. fountain in it, I believe. There <laughs> uh, was one called Wellington Arcade. There are one or two very, very good articles on mm. Glasgow's shopping arcades. There have been many kind of studies done. It is fascinating, as you say. It's lovely looking at an ordnance survey map because glass is typically delineated as a kind of lozenge, mm. lozenge mm-hmm. type of hatching. Yes. So you can immediately spot, yes, spot you know, where, who's where got a conservatory. Because, yes. of course, there were some very large ones in Polish Shields oh, and some ones very important ones out the West End. Yes. Um, I think Redlands House on uh, Great West oh, Road, yes. which was designed by James Boucher, of Abs- course. Absolutely. It had yeah, the there's, most... a, there's a very nice one in, um, in Newlands, um, there which is... is not in a happy way at the moment. Which is that? Which it's being propped up at the moment. Oh, is it? The um, one by Thomas Beard? Yes. Thomas yeah. Beard Jr. Yes, Thomas Beard. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That, there is That's... an application to, uh, to rebuild it. Oh, that's good. And then there's well, a good, fabulous one that's on um, Aiden Road in Polkshire. Yes. I'm, I'm not I'm, sure what's happening with that one no. at the moment. Yeah. So I've been quite concerned about that. And I did try and get it onto the Buildings of Risk Register. Yes. But yeah. it just, it's not a good fit because the villa, there's nothing wrong with the villa. No. The problem is yeah. the glass. Yes, glass. So it's, it's yeah. how, how, you know, you need somebody with deep pockets to be able to you handle do. something you like do. that. Yes, I mean, so, there's a, there's a, Fabulous one in Helensborough, mm-hmm. um, which was painstakingly restored I, by yes, the owner. Yeah, that's the one you can see. Yes, you Road. come down Sinclair Street mm-hmm. to to the and it's on the right hand side, mm-hmm. and it is just. But it was restored over a very long period of yeah, time. I by the it owner. being covered in top for years. Absolutely yeah. fantastic, um, and that, and that's really that's really what it needs. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. okay. Going going back to green spaces, and Glasgow's um, special relationship with its parks and glass houses. They offer beautiful views to buildings overlooking them, but what happens when you're on the inside looking out? Have the views from the park been managed at all? Um, well, in the case of Queen's Park, the, the, they're, all, they're all subtly different, of course. I mean, Kelvin Gove Park is very heavily contoured, of course. Mm. You've got the, that great granite staircase sticking mm. you up mm. to, the, um, to the housing from which you get the most remarkable views. So you can't really manage the views from Kelvin Gove Park because they're so distant. Mm-hmm. You're effectively looking to, to you know, the Erskine Bridge. Yes. <laughs> you can't really manage yes. that sort yes. of view. Um, and similarly, Queen's Park, of course, has got the viewing mound with the, with the flagpole. Yes. And I mean, yeah, you can, is, you can see which is wonderful. The, you know, the but at, at the same time, you can see how, and there's a fantastic Tom Sandon photograph taken from Glasgow University's spire in the early 1900s. Yeah. And you can see how yeah. Carol in particular controlled the heights of buildings yes. Yes. and how rigorous that was, this kind of four-story, ten-mental yes. city. Yeah. Yes. With the spires of the churches kind of poking out above, and you're not really getting any, you know, many big structures other yeah. than the chimneys. Yes, of course. Um, no. Huge yeah. industrial chimneys, and that I think is really fascinating. Yes. And yet, Carrick does that with Queens Park, with the churches, how it frames the views to the to the north with the two churches, and then you've got this whole kind of very level cityscape. Yeah, Carrick. Carrick famously made requirements of the tenements that were built mm-hmm. um, at the end of Victoria Road, at the entrance, uh, the north entrance into the park. But he also required that all churches had spires. So he was clearly looking for something that was quite scenic. And of course, famously, Alexander Thompson completely ignored that requirement <laughs> because he had this legendary dislike of the Gothic style. And he, of course, he created um, a Thompsonian equivalent at Queen's Park Church, which was an elongated dome. <laughs> oh, I know, wonderful. And such a loss. And such a loss. Yeah. 
Uh, but yes, view, views out um, in many, in the case of, interesting, Glasgow Green, of course, is very, very flat, mm. and so it ought to be possible. But the interesting thing about the views out from Glasgow Green is you, they've changed so mm. much because yeah, you're because looking so towards much, the Gorbals and Lauriston. Absolutely. And so, um, much, so much has been demolished. But then you've got you've still got kind of this this really kind of idea of how grand it could have been with with Templeton's carpet factory, but the loss of its equivalent. The, the yes, on the other Andrew, side of the road, on the, the other side, side of, of the river. Yeah, that yeah. major loss because mm-hmm. you can appreciate how that was this you know um, Renaissance kind of glass yes. facade yep. looking into and um, into Glasgow Green, and the two would have kind of worked with each other, and again Matif Row. The kind of oh, the complete wonderful. demolition yes. of that, Absolutely. and when you see that as a whole yeah. sequence, and how it's yeah. this very kind of level mm-hmm. classical facade that kind of wrapped around the facade well, that's by right. kind of the end of yeah. Victorian era. Well, I mean, green, it's all green, green Head Street has some wonderful tenements. Yes, it still, it still does. There are still that, some that left. wonderful little school. Yes, that sits there, which, yes, that's which right. is really beautiful. Charles Wilson. Exactly, perfect yeah. for a park Charles setting. Wilson. Yes. Yeah. So okay, so then what what next? What what can we learn from that kind of Victorian can do spirit? And you know, as a as a kind of society we face these kind of huge challenges on, on every front. But lockdown did reveal that communities and institutions can achieve what they can achieve when they work together. So, you know, we're living through this age of kind of incredible change in new technology. Are there any reasons to be cheerful? Oh yes, I think so. I think the I think what needs to be done is if there is a building, for instance, or a space that is in need of work, but there, there aren't the funds to do that work, it's just mm. important not to allow the deterioration to continue. Mm. It's important mm. to, and to prevent the loss of any sort of authenticity. And that's my main worry at Queen's Park. Mm. There have been some very major alterations that were carried out simply to allow it to function better for you know use as a, a, a kind of propagating centre. But mm. now of course the, the plants are imported, they're brought in, they're not grown at Queen's Park. Right. They get delivered. I appreciated that. Yeah, they right. do grow some, right. but most of them, uh, when I when I was there carrying out the drone photography, there was this huge delivery of bedding plants which had come from probably Holland. Right. <laughs> I'm pretty pretty sure it was out with Glasgow, it certainly was. Um, so I think there's there's been the loss of a number of the, the sheds that've been mm-hmm. brought down. Mm-hmm. Uh, there used to be five on either side of a of a great corridor. Um, quite a few of those have gone. There's a couple been replaced by polytunnels. A lot of the beautiful ridging, um, cast iron ridging along the tops has gone. It's important to just stop that. Mm-hmm. So that if there is a building um, that has no practical use at this point in time, that's not to say it won't have in the future. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's, it's a bit like the buildings at Risk Register, yes. which when it was set up and yeah. Mary Myers uh, yes. was in charge, it was a dating agency for buildings. Mm-hmm. These are buildings in need of an owner. Is mm-hmm. there an owner out there? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same with buildings like Queen's Park Glass House. Mm-hmm. You know, there will be a use and that use will come and the funding for that particular use will probably also come because it, it changes year on year what mm-hmm. funding is made available for. Yes. And of course, levelling up funding has been an opportunity that has allowed Pollock Stables, for instance, to be um, properly uh, restored. Um, but of course, that funding wasn't made available for the Winter Gardens, yeah. the People's Palace, which was yes. a huge disappointment to yeah, the city. Absolutely. So it's about what are the other funding opportunities? Yeah. And it will be driven by 
will be driven by things like energy, wellness, mm -hmm. you know, kind of well-being. Yes. Um, and you just have to seize those opportunities. Absolutely. Well, I, I hope that, you know, the levelling up fund, that it's a possibility of getting into a further round of that. And if the bid's already been prepared, then, then you know, you yeah. can recycle it for that. And yeah. Fingers crossed mm -hmm. that both of those should be able to qualify for something like that. But yeah, with when you look at what's happened with uh, Governor Graven docks the other day, yes. and the idea Great of you know, using yeah. green space mm -hmm. and paths, yes. that's 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 a good step forward. Yeah. And that's good to see something like that happening with that space. Yeah. I mean, it's... And actually, you mentioned something quite interesting, which is if you've got a piece of land that's been vacated because a whole series of industrial buildings were, were demolished, you know, why do we need to build on that piece of land mm. if it could provide more mm. green space for the city? Yes. I mean, there's a site opposite Governor Church where the new bridge is being built mm -hmm. um, on the other side, the north bank of the... Um, of the Clyde, um, and I imagine there are there are plans for housing, mm. but it would make a fantastic, mm -hmm. you know, foil to the church yes. um, across yeah. the water, and that could be developed as yes. a, because in Partick, where my office is, there are little tiny spots of greenery with trees, and they're being cleared for housing. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are trees. That's with, the two blocks. With, yeah, there are the trees with street. ribbons around them just yes. off the expressway yeah. because well, I'm not surprised that people feel so strongly about. Yeah, them. they do. They yeah, do. People really feel emotional you, about you, trees. You really, you really need these. We're still mm. in danger of overdeveloping. Yes. And we've lost a lot of small public parks. Phoenix Park has gone completely. Mm. It was at Cow Cabins. It was probably lost it's under the M8. Somewhere under the M8 now, which is it does. Which is a great Yeah, I recall being seeing interesting proposals kind of um, around the time of the city of culture for this kind of Olmsted-like series of parks across Glasgow and basically covering a lot of the space which had been, you know, where buildings had been obliterated and removed as a consequence of deindustrialization of comprehensive development mm -hmm. area policies and that accepting that the city had shrunk in size and that you instead gave that space back to green space. And with, you know, everything we know about climate change now, yes. maybe those aren't bad ideas. Yep. Yep. Yes, yeah, and I think it's 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 also, interestingly, it, it's quite important to 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 recognise that trees have a shelf life. Mm. Um, the the West End, of course, as we know, has got all these wonderful communal gardens, mm. Athol Gardens, Huntley mm. Gardens, all these fabulous shared spaces that mm. came into their own during lockdown. But you know, and there are a lot of trees planted on streets, Sockhill okay, Street, for instance. Mm -hmm. But they're getting too big, mm -hmm. so there needs to be a sort of cycle of anticipation of what what will yeah, it look like when that tree gonna, goes? Yes, yeah. what, what will it get replaced yes. with? There has to be a kind of yeah. ongoing. Yeah, kind we used of, to talk about this in Port Shields a yeah. lot because of all the street trees in Port Shields, and then what would happen? You know, if there'd been an accident yeah. or you know a tree became diseased and it got removed, how yes. do you go about replacing that? And how do you think in the longer term? about our parks and particularly sequences of views or avenues yes, trees, yeah. which have gotten really old or were never yes. meant to be that yeah. old. Yeah. So and it's mm -hmm. funny because you know when you actually look at the original photographs of a place like Pollock Shields, a lot of the trees are pollarded, they're quite yes. small scale yes. and the gardens are very ornamental and now it's completely different. Yeah. I mean Maxwell Park you could see pretty much from one end to the other because yes. the trees were not yet mature. Yeah. Yes, I think I think I mean, I love trees, but I think we're slightly over-precious about uh -huh. some trees in some right. places. And, you know, sort of like... What we could do with trees and others. Yeah. You know, people need to... But, I mean, 
gosh, we could mm. be growing our own trees and a mm. patch of land in Glasgow for transplantation. That's, that's what Olmsted did with yeah. you know, Central Park exactly. in New York. He encouraged people to do that, but it made yeah. sense to set up their own nurseries. And yes, and allotments. The, yes. the, the waiting lists for allotments it's in Glasgow ridiculous. are ridiculous. Yeah. There should be far, far more allotments. Yes, and we could, we could do that. Within with, walking with distance. Decontaminated land, yeah. you could Definitely. do that. Yep. So that would definitely be a worthwhile thing to do as well. Mm. The other thing I really want to would like to see accelerated, but again, it's all down to funding, is the Avenues project. Yes. Getting, getting yes. trees yeah. and gardens through the city centre yep. and like really improving the amenity yes. of the city centre. Yep. I think that's absolutely crucial. It's funny, I had a student who came in here about four years ago and asked me, why is there no trees in Glasgow city centre? And I'm like, Possibly because it was like a mercantile industrial city yeah. and there was no space for that because there were like 700,000 people living like, you know, within, the, yes. within a kind of mile of the city centre, so there was just no space for them. But, you know, possibly yes. that's yeah. it. Yeah. So, but that is a project for the future and kind of yes. seeing the of the yeah. city centre mm-hmm. is actually something really worthwhile. Yeah, it's interesting. The, um, there's, a, there's a chap, Duncan McClellan, who was the mm-hmm. superintendent of parks, who produced this wonderful book called Glasgow's Public Parks. And of course, it was more about you know, his legacy mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than it was about um, promotion for the city. But he, in the late 19th century, um, went to Europe mm-hmm. to look at how the urban parks in other cities Mm-hmm. Uh, across Europe were actually, you know, being developed. Right. So, you know, we, we, we need to look we need to yeah. look at how other yeah, great ab- great cities yeah, ab- absolutely um, and apply those lessons yes. here. Yeah. yeah. I think that's absolutely critical. Yeah. Okay, um, turning to our final question then, which is completely loaded. What is I'm intrigued to know this one, um, your favorite building in Glasgow, and it doesn't have to be a glass house obviously, um, and what could it tell you you or us if its walls could talk? Uh, well, my favourite building isn't in Glasgow, and that's St. Conan's Kirk on Loch which I'm sure you know. I know that wasn't the question, but I do like to get a little plug in for that wonderful, oh, wonderful church. It's yeah. wonderful. In a it's such a lovely service. It's fabulous. And so kind of all the carving on it is so intriguing. It's wonderful. Yeah, the, the, um, yeah that, that's, that's a very, very special building. Mm. And I'm not sure if I've got a favourite building. I've got a favourite building type. If that counts, oh, go on. the tenement, you cannot beat a Glasgow tenement. I love tenement. a tenement, yeah. Uh, all shapes and sizes, tenement. all colours. Yeah, massive fan. All, you know, I loved the photograph you tweeted the other day of those beautiful tiles. Mm-hmm. I didn't know existed. Yes, I, I love the Ooh, Glasgow um, tenement. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, probably bad of me, but it's Kirkcaldy Road, the tenements on Kirkcaldy Road. Um, so, um, yeah, they're kind of, because nobody ever goes down there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind yeah. of tucked away. The tremendous building really type. Really good um, places. Yeah, what is my favourite building? It, I was torn between anything by Charles Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, of whom I'm a big fan. The Queen's Rooms mm-hmm. on La Belle Place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely mm-hmm. a remarkable design. Mm-hmm. I've never been inside. No, it's been but burnt out. I don't think there is anything to see inside. Right. But what a monumental sculpture scheme on that. Mm. And how mm. brave Fabulous. to say, okay, this is going to be a big box with hardly <laughs> any windows. Let's just put a sculpture scheme on it. Um, but I'm interestingly, and, I, and of course the bottle, I'm a massive, massive fan of that. Mm. I came down to the old school of architecture mm-hmm. on Rotten Roll. Uh-huh. Um, from the 60s mm-hmm. um, designed by Frank Fielden yep, and it's... Professor Frank Walker mm-hmm. and it was the most wonderful building yes. it's designed yes. you know what it what it says mm-hmm. on did what it said on the tin it was designed for 
young architects, the mm -hmm. training of young architects, mm -hmm. and it was, it's, it's still, mm -hmm. of course, it, it is no longer the architecture yeah, faculty for Strathclyde, which is, which is tragic. Yes. <laughs> but um, fantastic building and made great use of light, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. Whole series of north lights. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Bays with side lights. Yes. Um, you know, great building, lots of lovely timber inside. Yes, it's listed now. Isn't it's it? listed. Yeah, quite mm -hmm. right. Be listed. Yes, and a fantastic concrete mural. Uh -huh. I can't remember the name of the sculptor, mm -hmm. but he's, um, you know, exceptional. As you come into the building, this tremendous mm -hmm. concrete mm -hmm. mural, of course, next to the, the, the lecture theatre. Brilliant, great design. Right. And Great, great building to yes, train well, as an architect. Sac sacrilege coming from me. You went to the Mac. It will. But I'm I sorry. Much prefer. Much prefer. Sorry. Much prefer. <laughs> much prefer a Strathclyde in there. I got the better building. You definitely you did. got the better building. Um, no, I always yeah. like going to a show in there because it's just, yeah, it was quality of light. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good. Quality of really finishes. lovely space. Very, very typical of that period, of yes. course. Yeah. Um, of which I'm It's funny because they are, when you see them on plan, they are, they are very similar building types. They are. But. Yes, it was the delivered was just so much better. So much better um, at, at Strathclyde. Yes, yeah. Sorry, Cappies. <laughs> so, yes, sorry, 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 Burdon building. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Which is the advantage yeah. of, of scalping over a road. It could have been so I much know, more I exciting. Know, I know, I know. In Quite. fairness, That's, it probably looked pretty smart, the Burdon building, when it was completed. I, sus I suspect yeah. so, but it was it was, a, it was obviously a difficult period because it was coming at the end of the oil crisis and they yes. really had to slash the budget yeah. when they were yeah. building it. But, so, um, but yeah, and also Strathclyde used a beautiful blue engineering brick instead mm, of, you know, mm. kind of shuttered concrete. But no, I think, think that, um, thinking it through, um, okay. I think that's probably my Very my interesting choice. Building. Yes, not, not, not an obvious <laughs> choice. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, Fiona. That was an absolute pleasure talking to you, as thank always. You. <laughs> much appreciated. Glasgow City Heritage Trust is an independent charity and grant funder that promotes the understanding, appreciation and conservation of Glasgow's historic built environment. Do you want to know more? Have a look at our website at glasgowheritage.org.uk and follow us on social media at Glasgow Heritage. This podcast was produced by Inner Ear for Glasgow City Heritage Trust. The podcast is kindly sponsored by the National Trust for Scotland and supported by Tunnocks.